This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we do have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the Transformation Kit at theartofcharm.com. If you like what you hear on the show, come hang with us on the blog. We get really in-depth on a lot of this there, and you can engage with the AOC team there as well. Or if you're new to the show and you want to find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, you can go to the website and we'll email you our Fundamentals Toolkit. That covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. We've got our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. We're sold out a couple months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch ASAP, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with the one and only Gary Vaynerchuk. If you've heard a bunch of interviews with him before, stay tuned. We're talking about a lot of stuff that he has never spoken about or hasn't spoken about in years, and we get pretty in-depth and deep dive on a lot of this stuff. If you haven't heard of Gary V, well, you're in for a surprise. He's very, very honest, got great energy, and is one sharp mofo. We're going to talk about why happiness is contextual and the dark side of entrepreneurship, how he sold baseball cards instead of reading Catcher in the Rye, making thousands of dollars as a kid, and why you should always be looking for a new challenge when you hit the top. Now, this guy turned his business from a few million into $60 million per year in sales and now runs one of the largest digital agencies anywhere. So enjoy this one with Gary Vaynerchuk. So tell us a little bit, of, for the people who've never heard of you, tell us what you do now, because you're not just a wine merchant anymore. Yeah, so now I think I break, you know, I wish my wife was here because she'd start laughing because whenever somebody asks me that, she thinks it's the funniest thing because I'm in true entrepreneur form. I am doing a lot of different things. But the two core things that I do right now is I run VaynerMedia, which is a 600-person social digital agency. And I'm really the CEO of that. And that's taking up, you know, 70, 80% of my time. And then I also run a fund called Vayner RSC, uh, which is a $25 million seed fund that I started two years ago with Steve Ross, the owner of the Dolphins. And then, and then I'm jamming on my personal brand, right? So it's speaking. Uh, I'm working on my new book. I actually just sat outside today for the last 12 and a half hours working on it. Uh, and there's the Ask Gary V, you know, show, which is in podcast and video form. And so I'm pumping out a lot of content more than normal. And so those are kind of the three things. So you run a digital agency and an investment fund. I will say those are two things that probably most of the people listening don't actually understand what they are. In fact, I'm not even sure I know what a digital agency is. So basically anybody who's watched Mad Men, 
uh, that's what we do, except it's 2016 and ni- not 1964, right? So for Pepsi and GE and Toyota, Mattel and the biggest brands in the world, we come in and say, what do you want to accomplish? Oh, weird. You want to sell toys? Oh, weird. You want to sell soda? Oh, weird. You want to sell cars? Cool. There's a lot of ways to do it. You can do it through television, print, radio, direct mail, Google AdWords. And there's this new thing, right? The current state of the internet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Tumblr. Um, and we help them lay out their strategy on those new things. And then we create the videos or pictures or animated GIFs that are tasked to achieve that goal. And so we do strategy and creative production and output around businesses objectives in a 2016 internet world right on so it's yes mad men with twitter and the investment fund is interesting because it's it's vc right venture capital that's right so for everybody listening early on i built a large e-commerce wine business and that's where i got my first start and then i realized i was right about a lot of internet trends so i decided after youtube sold for two billion dollars after i was on it early and thought it was going to be big when nobody knew what it was that the next time that would happen I needed to jump on it and make more money than just sell a couple of more bottles of wine. And I read in an article, there was something called angel investing, which I'd never heard of before. I was a DNF student, so I wasn't super educated on financial aspects of the world. And uh, I said, okay, I'm an angel investor. And the next thing I saw six months later was called Twitter. And I jumped on it. I got involved. I invested. And the first three things I put my money into were Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Tumblr. So I came out guns a-blazing. And, uh, and that started my investment career, and that's what led to the uh, the leverage that allowed me to start a fund. Interesting. Yeah, that's, I mean, those are three decent picks for anybody born under a rock. And the exit from Tumblr, a lot of people haven't probably heard of that, but if you have a daughter or son who's 17, ask them what Tumblr is, and they're on it more than anything. So it, there's something interestingly maybe ironic is the right word about you having been born in the Soviet Union and now running a venture capital fund. It's literally the opposite in so many ways. Jordan, it's even more intense than that. Like I'm a straight capitalist, entrepreneur, meritocracist, like everything against the Soviet point of view, that is me. And so I'm actually completely driven by gratitude. I'm so thankful that uh, that the place that I was born was not the place that I grew up uh, and not the place that I made my home because it was just fundamentally completely against everything that I am DNA-wise. So, um, yeah, I would say that is super ironic. How did your parents get out of Belarus? Because the, the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is the Soviet Union is tough. Belarus is even more tough. It's almost like North Korea in that it has a dictator. The whole place is built around unfairness and favoritism and cronyism and poor planning and is really oppressive. You can't just buy a flight ticket and go, you know what, we're moving to New York. Forget this place. Yeah, I mean, it's the last dictatorship in Europe. I mean, we left in 78 when it was the Soviet Union, so there was no separate Belarus versus kind of Russia dynamic that you're referring to. Mm. But I'm super impressed with your skills. I mean, most people never even heard of Belarus. Seems like you've got a grasp on it. You know, so we left in 78 when uh, Israel and the U.S. teamed up in the late 70s and made a trade with the Soviet Union to let Jews in Russia out. And so basically, as weird as it sounds, I was traded for wheat. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I asked a lot of people if you came from there because you were Jewish, and they said, I don't think so. Yeah, that's just the the only way you got out of the Soviet Union in the late 70s was if you were Jewish. And so 
that's uh that's how we got out <laughs> they were they were thrilled to get rid of us uh, as they say and so that was uh the opportunity and, and and a great opportunity it was do you ever wonder how much wheat you were worth if you could just break it down does that pl- does that haunt your dreams you know what's crazy i don't think about that but i swear to god based on how many taxes i pay in this country i do think about how awesome of a trade that was for the us yeah, that's that's right. It's like this guy we traded for like a kilo or two. He's like a <laughs> Jewish baby, literally worth like, you know, they're trying to get rid of it like a prisoner almost. And now it's like you like literally millions of dollars a year in taxes yeah. from one dude. I mean, I think it was a good arb for the U.S. Yeah, yeah definitely. Really, really, really well done. And now you're the complete opposite. And, and coming into the country from. I don't know what it was like then, and maybe maybe you haven't asked. I'm wondering, was your father even allowed or able to run a business back then? No, it was everybody who had any business DNA ended up in jail. It was all black market. You know, the Soviet Union is the government owns everything. That's the game. So there was no business. My dad has business DNA. He was a construction worker in the USSR, and when we came to the U.S., that was his plan, but the market collapsed, the housing market. Nobody was building, and so he became a stock boy in a liquor store in Clark, New Jersey, that started our American dream. But yeah, I mean, it's nasty, Jordan. Like, you know, one thing I talk about, you know, I, I was excited about this uh, interview and, and thanks for having me on and excited to get exposed to some of the listeners because I know there's a lot of them. And I was thinking, you know, what are the things that I could talk about that I have in the past? And the one thing that came to mind, if we were going to go into the backstory is, I don't think the people listening right now, pff, I talk about how much I hate complainers and I hate that, you know, people complain. And I got to tell you, I think it stems from the fact that I don't think people understand how good we have it, right? Like you could talk about the shrinking middle class, which is real. I hate the separation of wealth in the U.S. I do think it's too disproportionate. There's plenty of racism. There's sexism. There's a lot of crap, right? A ton, Mm -hmm. unlimited amount, greed. There's enormous crap. By comparison to the rest of the world's crap, it's remarkable. Like literally, literally, if you're listening right now and you live in America, I highly recommend you just pinch yourself out of happiness because I think that people are completely flabbergasted and lost and just don't have a good context on how how much opportunity there really is in the scheme of things by comparison. And at the end of the day, it's all by comparison, right? I mean, Jordan, I'm sure we all have friends that people remember that said when Bush was going to get elected or if Obama got reelected, that they would move to Canada, right? Like I I like a million friends, both on both sides over the last 10 years. Oh, if Bush gets reelected, I'm moving to Canada. Cool. Forty-eight years later, if Obama gets reelected, I'm moving to Canada, right? Meanwhile, everybody's still in America. Right. Yeah. No, nobody left. No. And so, you know, to me, you know, it was really bad. I'm very grateful. There was so much suppression like there is in so many other places. And so the market is not perfect, but the opportunity is real. In the town where you came from, Babarusk, how close is that to Chernobyl or the disaster area? I was curious. I tried to look it up, couldn't find it. Well, I appreciate the homework you're putting into these things. The crazy part is pretty damn close. People in Belarus, uh, I'm part of a charity called Chernobyl Heart, which tries to help the kids and families that were affected. And it's really nasty. Chernobyl Heart, I don't want to get gruesome here, but it's a condition where your heart is, when you're born, is on the outside of your body, not the inside, all coming from that you know, the worst atomic spill in the history of our time. I very much could have been affected because uh, it was close enough. And so 
You know, just you start just being thankful, you know, I just completely driven by gratitude. Do you ever think about what you would have ended up doing had you stayed in Belarus, like what line of work you'd be in and stuff? I think about it all the time. It's something I think about more than once a month. It runs through my mind on a plane after something good happens, after something bad happens, after definitely any time I'm hanging out with Russian people. You know, and and I'm very in tune to what would have happened. I would have been 15, 16 when, when Russia kind of collapsed. It became a complete Wild West scene. I would have been in my young prime buck days. Well, there's three outcomes I've pretty much figured out at this point. Number one, I'd be a massive billionaire already. Uh, number two, I'd be in jail. Uh, number three, I would be long dead. Uh, you know, I would have been very entrepreneurial. You know, sometimes my friends are like, oh, that guy's a gangster because he was aggressive in a business deal. I mean, you're talking about real gangster ship out there where if the deal went wrong, you end up in a ditch. And so two of the outcomes are pretty negative. One is pretty sweet. So I'll still stick with what I've got here. But I, it's something that runs through my mind all the time. I think even if you ended up being a billionaire over there, I think that stuff's still tough because you hear about those cases where one guy, especially if you're Jewish, you become a billionaire and then the state decides that you did it through crime, which is probably partially true, but they prosecute you and then you accidentally die in jail of a heart condition, right? <laughs> I mean, you were up to your uh, Eastern Europe Soviet uh, Soviet nuances. I don't think people really realize what's going on over there. It's pretty intense stuff. Yeah, it's extremely tough. The oligarchy, and I don't want to bore my audience with that stuff because I think it's interesting as heck, but I think it also gets into, I took a class on it in law school and even I couldn't pay attention. So it, it does get really <laughs> detailed and probably a little bit beyond the scope of everything. What values would you say that you took away besides just like work really hard? That's kind of almost cliche, right? There's more than just work really hard because lots of people work really hard, but not like immigrant from Belarus hard. Uh, I mean, anybody listening that does know my spiel knows that hustle is like some, I mean, you're damn right. I mean, I mean, guys, let me, let's really take a step back here from the ages of five to 14. I'm talking about nine years. I literally saw my dad 11 times, 11. I mean, and my parents were together. I mean, literally, literally, he left at 7 a.m. and got home at like 11 p.m. And he had two days off a year, Christmas and New Year's Day, and he slept. Like, literally did not see my dad. Literally didn't know. Like, literally got raised by one parent in a house that was super happy and together. It's just my dad worked that hard to establish the American dream for our family. And then I picked that up. I mean, I'm, I'm a complete workaholic. I mean, I was just on a call with somebody literally on a call with somebody just moments ago. And they were like, look, I'm thinking about leaving my job. I'm doing this hobby on the side, 15 hours a week. You know, I'm trying to run the math, you know, so if I go from 15 hours a week to the 40 hours a week that, you know, work week is, then I can do X. And I said, excuse me, I go, if you're going to quit your job and start your own business, you're going to work 90 hours a week. The hell is this 40 hours a week? Like all my friends that say they're hustling and working hard, but have time for like entire seasons of House of Cards or Game of Thrones. The level of disrespect that I have for what 99% of my contemporaries and friends call hard work is enough to make me unlikable to myself. That's how much discontent I have for it. It's so visceral. It's kind of nasty. That's really interesting. I got an email from a listener the other day who's getting an MBA, has like a bunch of kids and has a day job and 
I said, wow, how do you balance all that? Because you work really hard. And he's like, it's funny because I wouldn't have expected you to ask that because I have that same image as like hard worker, hustler, really gets everything done. And we were talking about this back and forth. And he said, you know, it is really frustrating. I think that contempt is very universal because he said, I'll go to school and he's going to a great school getting his, his MBA. And he's like, these kids who have like a part-time job as a barista will come in and go, oh, I couldn't finish my portion of the project because... You know, I had I had like a six hour shift yesterday and I worked on Wall Street. I've seen hard work, too, or at least hard office time. No, no, that's real hard work. I mean, people hustle there. J.H., I got to tell you, like, this is a subject matter. You know, I'm trying to tread lightly here because I know that a big percentage of this audience that's listening right now doesn't know who I am. And this is my absolute opportunity to completely lose everybody because (laughs) I'm it doesn't calibrate for me. So at 30, I started Wine Library TV, YouTube blows up. At 31, I'm on Conan O'Brien, Ellen. There's articles being written about me. Now they're writing that the business grew from three to $60 million in sales. I'm becoming this guy. Facebook is just coming out. This is 06, 07 to people that are a little bit older. I got so many goddamn emails from friends in high school during that period when I was showing up in all these magazines and TV shows. And every single one of them, was like, hey, Gary, you remember me from high school? It's Ricky. Dude, you're so lucky. I just saw you on this. I just saw you on Today Show. Were you just on CNN? Oh, my God. You're so lucky. No joke. I wrote back every single one of them and said, hey, Ricky, great to connect again. Hope you're well. Just saw a picture of your family. Looks great. Let me just clarify one thing. I'm not lucky. Remember senior year of high school when you'd go to the Jersey Shore and bang chicks? I worked. I worked every goddamn weekend and every holiday since I was 14 years old. So you can keep that luck shit in your pocket. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, man, you know. Gary's really changed. The fame's gotten to him. Yeah, but I would jerk. obviously say it in a whole, like in a soft tone and hedge it. That's too bad. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you said that. No, no, really. I did say it to people that I was a little friendlier with. And then obviously people like I barely like saw the hallway. I, I kind of hedged it a little bit, but it was unbelievable to me. And first of all, I was pumped, right? Like all this good stuff was happening. I was flattered. This wasn't a negative, but it did catch my attention pretty quickly. I was like, my God, every single person has used the word luck in describing this thing. And I guess that's what people really think. I guess they really forgot that they went to all those keg parties and I wasn't there. And at school on Monday, they were like, where were you? And I was like, you know, I was working after, you know, like I got to work at the liquor store. Like, so I think hard work's a really intriguing subject matter. A lot of people writing, you know, work-life balance stuff now. Uh, There's a real shift in our world. I mean, look what you're up to right now. Like, I mean, you're literally, you know, right now, you have the size of an audience of a hit radio show in our society only 20 years ago, right? Like all with the infrastructure of new technologies with very small infrastructure by comparison, the world is in such a shift. We're living through another industrial revolution. There are so many winners and losers over the next 20 years. It's going to be really intriguing. And if somebody is confused that hard work isn't at least one of the four, if not one of the three pillars that are going to make the winners and losers kind of like shape out, then they're just lost and are living in a world that is convenient for their mindset and their maybe short-term ambition. I like that a lot, the living in the world that's convenient for your mindset, because I see a lot of this and we call it, it's part of backwards rationalization, right? Where if something good happens to someone else, you can sort of build it backwards. And you might get this a lot. Some people might be like, well, easy for you to say, you grew a business from three to 60. How, How about growing from zero? 
you know, or something like that. All the time. What would you say? What do you say to those people anyway? Because I, I actually am curious, like, how would you defend that? Because it's an awful thing to say. And it's obviously, I mean, how do you handle something like that? It's probably been the lightning rod most that it hits my emotional center because I have so much pride in what I've accomplished. I mean, I'll tell you something that I rarely talk about. So I was a shit student. I went to Mount Ida College and in, I, barely, I never went to class and they passed me through anyway. And I'd come home every weekend. But when I was 18 as a freshman in college, I'd call my mom maybe six or seven times bawling, just crying my ass off and saying, Mom, I don't want to go into the liquor business because everybody's going to say that dad gave it to me, right? That, you know, and, and, you know, when you're doing it, when you have a $3 million business that has 12% gross profit, not net profit, gross profit, we're not talking about a large business, especially by comparison to what everybody's got today. You can build some quick businesses with bigger margin than that. But I knew that it was going to hover. And for a long time, I thought that I really wasn't going to go in even though I always talk about I was always going to be in, I was always going to be in. There was doubts when I was 18, 19, because I didn't want that to hover. I guess at the end of the day, the truth is undefeated, right? Like, you know, if I go on and accomplish what I feel like I'm going to, when you start getting into hundreds of millions and billions, that three number starts feeling smaller and smaller and smaller. But like, if people want to use that, I mean, I'll be honest with you, and this is something I've never said, and I'll say it here. And I don't like saying it because I don't want to hurt my dad's feelings or my mom's feelings. I think financially, I took a step back by going into my family business. Don't forget, I was making two, $3,000 a weekend selling baseball cards as a 14-year-old. I'm pretty sure that any hustle I would have come up with online in the mid-90s would have made me more money than what Wine Library did. Now, what Wine Library brought me was a relationship with my dad. My dad taught me a lot of great morals because I have the DNA that could have easily led me to be a bullshitter, and he course-corrected me. Um, so I'll never regret it. But as fact as like what my upside was because of it, I think that uh, I've proven enough innovation and did enough things within that world. And then later on that I feel comfortable in my skin, but it's always been a sore spot. Like if somebody wants to razz me, they could always say, well, you had that start. I don't. And then I point to people that are way more successful than me, Zucks and Travis and a million people, you know, that have built things from zero that are way bigger than anything I've accomplished so far that are easy to point to. I think people are in the excuse business and I, I agree with you. I think people reverse engineer what, what makes them feel good. And I always just say the market's the market. I mean, listen, Bill Parcells once said, you are what your record said you were. What I say to people that kind of razz me, I said, cool, when we both die, let's see how this all nets out. And so I'm going to be who I am. And, and if I don't achieve the things that I think I'm capable of, then I was wrong. Then I had too much bravado because at the end of the day, you are what you are. Zucks being Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, and Travis being Travis Kalanick, founder of Uber, right? Just in case people aren't, aren't, in the, aren't in the Silicon Valley scene. That's right. Yeah. S- sorry, everybody. I'm a little teched out. Apologize. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Well, that's a, it's funny because you can get really involved in a scene. Tech is a, a classic example. Me, I live in Silicon Valley. I live in San Jose, California. And so I, I'm surrounded by that. You can go to a Chinese restaurant and hear people say, you know, <laughs> these names are our household here. But yeah. it's funny because people here, they, they'll say, we don't really have an advantage just because we live around here. But when you're surrounded by people talking about that, talking about ideas, talking about paradigm shifts, and then you get your family visiting you from like Michigan and things like that. And you say, yeah, just Uber on over here. And, and they go, Uber. Uh, wait, do what over there? Well, yeah, Uber. Do you don't have it? Oh, hold on. It's an app that, no, it's like a car app. You could call a taxi. And they're going, oh, this is really cool. I got to show, do we, I wonder if you have this at home. And I'm like, I don't know. I, you know, cause you assume the whole world has it. It's not just like, ha ha, you don't have Uber, but it really starts to say, wait a minute. When you surround yourself with all these people that are talking about ideas, working in companies that generate ideas, it's really easy to stay gung ho about the future. It's a different story when you're surrounded by people that are maybe complacent or fairly placed inside the status quo and not really questioning it. And I think that might be why sometimes people from your hometown, my hometown say things like that, because it just doesn't compute. They're not trying to be jerks about it. Some of them are, but some of them, it just, it's outside their reality of what's actually possible given everything they know about the world. Uh, you are 100% correct, my friend. I have one of the fastest growing agencies, as I mentioned earlier, and our fourth office, while everybody was waiting for it to be in Chicago or London or Miami, after New York, San Francisco, and LA, I opened an office in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the single reason I did was because of what you just talked about to your audience, which is uh, in my world of advertising technology, a lot of people get what I call coast mentality. They don't realize that America isn't just New York, LA, and San Francisco. And I've been lucky because I've written three books and done extensive touring with it and do a lot of public speaking that I've been to all the corners of the US Listen, I, I was born in a small village in the Soviet Union where I grew up in New Jersey was actually quite rural up in Hunterdon County, New Jersey. I would say it's more Iowa than Jersey. And I have great appreciation for the fact that there's a lot of dimensions to America. And so I wanted my company to be grounded in a lot of other scenes besides just the hipster tech, Hollywood, New York lifestyle. And it's been a big help to our company. It's really grounded people to understand different parts of this country. And I'm going to open up more offices and, you know, what many would deem as third, fourth, you know, kind of tier cities, but to me are imperative to my complete understanding of the U.S. market. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? You got to know what people are looking for in different parts of the country. And the majority of the country is not 
hanging out in Manhattan with their friends drinking martinis at 4 p.m. on a Friday or Thursday for that matter. Yeah, I mean, and especially what we do for a living, so much of what we sell is being sold at Dollar General and Walmart. And I feel like even though I'm a high intensity New York kind of DNA guy, I have a lot of a uh, grounded soul in, in the workmanlike different aspects of, of middle America. And it's important to me. Yeah, it's it's uh it seems like something you could easily lose touch with. It kind of reminds me of those juicy fruit commercials that were always about skiing. And I'm like, how did that sell in Texas where people are like, <laughs> man, no, I don't do that. I don't know how that works. Um, or like water sports in the middle of America. Yeah, I wonder I wonder what, how those how those ads work <laughs> out. It's just not. I mean, that's just speaks to commercials being completely not something that people should be looking at from a marketing standpoint as much anymore when you can run Facebook video against people in Texas and talk about things that are going on in Texas and then segment the people that live in, you know, Hawaii because they're totally different. And and so you're preaching. How do you stay hungry? Or let's, let's, let's say back in the day, how did you stay hungry? Now it's just, you're probably on a roll and have momentum like crazy when you're looking at something and you're like, listen, I'm, this business is making 3 million bucks a year. I don't need to, I don't need to make it bigger. Why should I? Or, or even when it was making 60 and you're like, okay, well, why should I start a venture capital fund? Like what, what is the impetus to keep leveling up? This is a really interesting question. And the truth is, this is probably what I spend a lot of my own time on. I like psychoanalyzing myself. I don't know what that says in itself. <laughs> um, I was four foot 11 my freshman year of high school. <laughs> you know, that probably helped when I was five and just learning, maybe four years old, five, four and a half, five, just learning English. Kids picked on me because I couldn't speak English. You know, I love underdogs. I, would, I grew up a big Yankee and New York Ranger fan. As soon as they won, I stopped caring. I'm completely in love with the New York Jets and Knicks. They've not won for me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like the week before my vacation instead of the vacation. I love the anticipation. I love the journey, Jordan. I love the climb. I love proving people wrong. I love when people say, you know, you can't do it or you're not as good or you were bad. I mean, I loved being a bad student and all of the parents of my friends said that I was going to be a loser or little Ricky was going to this school. Where are you going, Gary? And trying to stick it to me. I actually don't like winning. I actually think once I felt like I was at the top of the wine retail and wine game in the U S I started having kind of a, a roaming eye to other things. I, uh, I prefer the climb. I'm into the journey. I think I have a real purity when it comes to entrepreneurship, which is show me the climb, show me the challenge. I loved that everybody in Madison Avenue thought that I was, you know, the headlines were real like Twitter boy because I had a lot of Twitter followers. Twitter boy comes to Madison Avenue and starts an agency. He's going to find out it's way harder to build an agency than to amass a Twitter following. I've really enjoyed in the last four years sticking it to all of them and building the biggest and baddest and fastest and strongest business in that space. And so it comes from a bad place. That's the truth. Like I'm a good guy and I love that. And I'm liked and you know, more probably you and you know, whoever, I mean, people have back channel on me. They've got a good sense of who I am, but when it comes to competition, I'm a bad guy. I want to stick it to people. I'm motivated by others. I'm motivated by myself. And that's always what people want to say. But I don't want to give you the PC answer. I want to give you the truth. And the truth is I'm massively, massively motivated by others. I want to have a legacy. I want to be known as great in the entrepreneurial generation that I grew up in. And I'm driven by a lot of vanity, kind of like non-noble causes. That's just the truth. I mean, I think the only good thing that I'm driven by is I really want to bring my team along for the ride. 
I get enormous pride and excitement and, and really get juiced up by the thought of like making millionaires out of my right hand and men and women and key lieutenants. And that excites me tremendously. That's excellent. And that's a really honest answer. I think a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm just following my potential or, you know, I want to help as many people as I can and create a lot of value, which is partially true. But a lot of it comes from, yeah, listen, I was short and people thought I was going to blow it. So I want to <laughs> blow up as much as I can to make them feel stupid. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I, it's just the truth. I just really like being I, I love the underdog. I mean, I hated Tiger Woods. Now that he stinks, I love him. I hated Kobe Bryant my whole life. Now that he's old and finished, I love him. You know, any sporting event I watch, it's always underdog. I'm just a classic fan of the underdog. I hated Hulk Hogan. I was a macho man guy. Like, it was just, it's a very consistent theme in my life. And I especially love being underestimated in business context. I really do. Does that still happen to you? Yes, which is which is fun, meaning it, it changes. Now it's happening at a level that's almost so flattering. It, it's crazy, right? Like the people that are left underestimating me are the last kind of tier, right? You know, if, if you kind of break down the businessman and women game, I'm probably in tier three, tier two, depending on the day. Um, but I'm still not in that billionaires, girls and boys club and, and kind of that 60 to 80 year old establishment. And, and that establishment still kind of underestimates me. And I'm not even in tier one of the tech space of Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and Travis, like I'm in that next tier and maybe even, maybe even the third tier. So I think that, um, it still happens. I mean, I've, I've definitely got a lot more accolades and victories and good things under my belt. I think that I interact with people so much on social media that I'm liked by the masses. And so I get that value, but there'll always be more mountains to climb. Um, I truly, you know, I spew anywhere I can, Jordan, that I'm going to buy the New York Jets. I really do believe 99% of people when they hear me say that think, you know, don't even think twice, don't even think that's conceivable or that I'm up to that level. Cause that's a two, $3 billion asset. So I think that uh, it's going to always happen. You know, I heard you say that once that you were going to buy the Jets. And after you had the Tumblr exit and other things like that, I was checking to see if you would actually do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wrote smaller checks back then because I was still I just wasn't wealthy enough to write bigger checks. And so I'm a I'm a grinder. I'm a climber. Right. This is going to be a long journey. I'm not going to be one of those whiz kids on the cover of you know, Time Magazine that makes it in a four-year period. That's just not in my DNA. I have a feeling that my kind of narrative plays out with me looking like Yoda, like 88 years old, and like, and it just says he did it, you know? Like, finally, like, great. Thank God he bought the Jets right before he died. Like, to me, it's going to be a marathon. Yeah, what's the next mountain, though, when you get the Jets and then they win the Super Bowl? You're going to be like, ugh, I hate this team and sell it? You know, if the Jets win a Super Bowl before I buy them, and I think I need 25 years... I'm not even sure if I'm going to want to buy them. Like literally the only reason I want to buy them is I want to control my own destiny to the one thing that brings me pain that is not a real thing, right? Like I keep life pretty basic. As long as I wake up tomorrow and none of the 11 people that matter to me the most, family and core best friends are, as long as none of them had any illnesses or died or anything of that nature, I'm pretty stunningly happy. The one thing that I allow myself to get emotional about that shouldn't be important is the New York Jets. And so I don't know, it'll be interesting. But like, I always wonder in psychoanalyzing myself, and I wonder for all the listeners now, if you could take a minute and think about this, did you create your ambition so that it was actually achievable? 
or did you create your ambition so it actually drove you to go so high? I mean, you know, there's a big part of me, not that I can't believe it, but I'm very grateful for what I have, both from a family standpoint and a financial and business standpoint. But it is stunningly short of what I want or what I've put out into the universe as what I want. And then I have a lot of friends who've created very small goals, intimate friends, and we talk about this, and a lot of them have already achieved it. And it's just an interesting psyche. And I do think it stems a little bit from liking the underdog versus, oh, I'm a Golden State Warriors fan now, right? Or I'm a Patriots fan, but I live in Denver. Like, what's that? I don't understand that. That pisses me off, Jordan, by the way. I just, I'm just sneaking that into the interview. If you live in a city that has a team and you like a different team and they're a good team, you're straight bandwagon and it pisses me off. Yeah, well, you, you know what? Coming from Detroit, you can always buy the Lions instead of the Jets. You don't have to worry about it. It's an insurance <laughs> policy against the Jets winning the Super Bowl. Yeah, Lions. You know what? But that's what's so funny that you just brought that up. Like, I massively respect real Lion fans. We would go there to watch them on the big TV in the Silverdome, which is now, I don't even know if it's still there. And you'd watch them on the TV and they would start, they would be like playing Buffalo and like, you know, something we were like, oh my God, this might actually happen. And then they would eventually blow it. And I've never seen an angrier crowd of, of people literally just watching TV. I mean, it was like unbelievable. We had to like, you know, my friend's dad would make us leave and we'd be covering our head with a blanket because people were throwing bottles. I mean, these people were the most passionate fans of any team that has not done well that I've ever seen in my whole life. And I've lived in many big cities where teams blow it. But Detroit fans, I mean, it's a real deal. I've I've actually been in Detroit twice in the last um, six to eight weeks working on some business deals. It's really cool. I'm really excited about the resurgence of Detroit and just, it's got a grit and it's got something that I can really respect. I mean, it is, it's far from soft. It's, it's also a serious, serious underdog. Yes. And I love that. I mean, I, I feel bad for Boston fans. They had real identity with like being lovable losers. Now they just win all the time. They've won all these championships and like all these 25 year olds have won a championship in all four major sports. And I look at their grandfathers and grandmothers and grand, you know, parents, I respect them. They've been through tough times, but these 23 year olds that have won six, seven, eight championships across four sports. And since, you know, uh, they're soft, Boston fans are soft. Now, bringing it back to things that that people are people are like Jordan's talking about sports. What's what happened? <laughs> what the hell happened here? You were working in a brick and mortar, and you you kind of swung over to digital. I mean, you're a hundred percent digital. Are there lessons that you took from brick and mortar that you took to digital, and now you're taking to these Fortune 500 brands that you're doing digital for? Yeah, I mean, what I took was consumer behavior. You know, when you're 14. Like my whole life, baseball cards, lemonade stands, the uh, liquor store, I'm a merchant, right? And when you're a merchant, what you're paying attention to is behavior. Like what happens when somebody walks in and sees a big display of a wine? You know, how do you get them to buy something? And so what I really learned was really to get nerdy, what's called UI UX, like how to lay out a website, like how to make a good product. And really, I actually suck crap at 99% of things in the world. I just happen to be really great at one core thing, which is I just understand people's buying behaviors, right? I just understand what makes people tick, what makes them say, yes, I'll buy that. And that is something I've, uh, I learned from the real world that I've applied to the digital world and, and vice versa. I'm actually quite bullish on, uh, on physical retail. It's not going to go away so quick. I think that digital is a gateway drug to 
human interaction. So everybody listening who gets mad that people are on cell phones all day, I think they're connecting with people and have deeper relationships. It allows them to have more in-person meetings. The data proves it. So I'm an optimist with all this stuff. And, and I believe in the old school and the new school. And so uh, I think they both have merits. Now, how did you figure out some of your strengths and weaknesses? I mean, you said you what was it? You suck crap at ninety nine percent of things. How did you figure that out? And how did you figure out what you were actually good at as well? Especially as you started to grow multiple companies. Uh, trial and error, right? Like getting F's on your report card across the board in sixth grade is a pretty solid indicator that you suck at school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then that weekend, going to a baseball card show and having grown. 30, 40, 50 year old men hovering around you as a 14 year old because you're making a lot more money than them and they're asking you for tips and ideas how to generate more sales on Sunday because you just crushed it in Saturday in a hall or a mall or a fire station where everybody's flabbergasted. This 14 year old that looks eight years old is just destroying it. Um, it was a very weird life to live, right? I was getting extreme feedback from both ends, right? I was, uh, making $300 a weekend selling lemonade when, when five bucks was a lot as a 10 year old or making thousands as a 14 year old. But then I was going to school. Like I was literally making $3,000 a weekend consistently and then going to school and having a teacher telling me I was never going to amount to anything. And then me, because I wasn't a bad kid and my mom really taught me right. Me trying to figure out a polite way to tell Mrs. Thompson that Miss Thompson, that makes, that's fine. But just to put it into math terms, you know, you're making $42,000 a year and I'm making, you know, prorated a buck 50 and I spend all my time at school. Right. Yeah. Like I basically have a part-time job because I'm here suffering with you and I made three times what you make. Like, sorry that I can't recall what was in Catcher in the Rye since I never read it in the first place, but I sold 87 Frank Thomas rookie cards this week because, you know, I traded and bought and anticipated and watched the market and studied how baseball cards went up for five years. Like, sorry. What did your parents, though, especially your dad, being super hard workers, think about your performance in school versus your performance on the battlefield of business? Because you were crushing it in business. Did they kind of go, all right, he screwed up in school, but he's doing really well here? Or were they like, listen, proud of you for the baseball card thing, but get your shit together? No, they were all in on number one, which was great. They gave me, I mean, I'm not who I am without my parents, and it's not even close. I'm, I'm disproportionately affected by my parents' parenting in comparison to my contemporaries. They completely allowed me to bet on my strengths. They gave me the room to kind of attack. You know, honestly, there's been a whole lot about me in this call. I would love, love to take a few minutes to maybe say something that I hope brings, you know, to me, bringing value in any interview or book or show is the game. And so... If you're listening right now and you have a student, you have a child who's a student, who's a poor student between third, let's call it third grade and, and senior year of high school, please, please, please look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, do you want your kid to have good grades because your self-esteem is wrapped up in it and you want to tell other parents that little Ricky's going to go to Harvard or Yale uh, or you're embarrassed that they're not going to, that they're going to go to a community college or they, or not even college? Uh, or, is that you? Because are you not looking for the tendencies of them being an incredible, you know, singer or, or artist or entrepreneur? Are you mad that little Ricky's getting D's and F's 
foresees, but he's selling a crap load of sneakers on Instagram right now. You know, pay attention because that's what my parents did. They paid attention. And yeah, I wasn't winning there, but I was so winning in other places that um, they created a net net score in their mind. And my mom punished me for bad report cards. She tried to make me understand that there was consequences for underperforming, but but she'd also schlep my baseball cards in the snow you know, a mile to get to the car and then drive to a show to allow me to have those experiences. And so I think my parents pushed me harder to work. Like I had to work in the liquor store way more than my brother and sister because that was going to be my outlet. But other than that, they supported me in an insane way. And as somebody who's living the happiest life of anybody, you know, you can only tie me if you're super happy on the other line of this, please put your kids in a position to be happy and succeed, especially because never more so than now, if they have business tendencies, what college is selling business kids is such a farce compared to the marketplace. You know, most professors in communication schools, top communication schools, aren't even talking about podcasts yet, Jordan. They're yes. barely getting around to, to social media. I mean, it's a joke. Yeah, the, the fact is those institutions are always going to be behind. And that's okay if that's not going to be your job. If it's just going to give you an overview, you don't have to be that sharp. But Business changes faster than pretty much anything else. So if especially you want to, now. especially now. So if you want to be on the top of it, business going to school for it not necessarily the best thing to do. And it's it's funny because I was going to ask you. We got a letter from a show fan. She has a student, a son, and he wants to be an entrepreneur. And she's an entrepreneur, but she's like, ah, but should he go to college first and work for a company? And she wrote in to ask what I thought. So and you kind of touched on that. But let me ask you flat out. If you're in her shoes and she's an entrepreneur and her son wants to do the same thing, she's still got a little bit of a nag that he needs to go to school and get some corporate experience. What do you think of that? I think I have a lot of um, empathy for her because I think she, like me, like you, we're of an age where we were affected by the greatest branding of all time, which is college in America. And she's feeling the effects of that incredible marketing and branding. But I can tell you, I can emphatically with a six and a three-year-old in my life right now as children, if my kids don't go to college, I'm super cool with that. That's not even, doesn't even run through my mind. And uh, I would tell her from one man's point of view that if he's truly an entrepreneur, not a business consultant that needs a degree to get a job at Bain or McKinsey, but if he, he truly is going to start his own crap or go work for somebody that, you know, a five, seven, 12 person business, he will learn so much more in the trenches than any education. Look, I couldn't get into any of the schools that I go and speak at now. And yeah, I'm going to Harvard in the fall to speak. I mean, crazy stuff, stuff that makes my mom so happy because she always, you know, she grew up of that generation where school was a value. And I go there and I listen to the curriculum. I'm like, oh my God, these people are taking $200,000 in debt and being taught something that isn't real anymore. And so I would give her emphatic, emphatic advice to uh, allow her son to do his thing and create boundaries, right? You don't want them to, I mean, I was an entrepreneur that wanted to work 18 hours a day. That's why my parents felt comfortable. You know, a lot of people want to throw around entrepreneur and just chill. So you got to make sure he's a true entrepreneur. Right. Not somebody who wants a four hour work week or, you know, not, I'm not picking on Tim, but that's just like the cliche who wants to be able to work from the beach, but somebody who's so driven to do something else that they can't function probably in a corporation. Yeah, we are in a, such a rub right now between what college is teaching true entrepreneurship and what is happening in the trenches. And the part that really gets me crazy, Jordan, is the people that are incurring debt. If you're incurring debt and then it's not helping you, and again, lawyers, doctors, cliche things like that, architects, 
even business consultants, I get it. There's an ROI there. But if you are truly an entrepreneur, there is not a single university that's doing the right thing by you. Well, I hope people can underline that. And if you're just sort of listening, like, oh, wait, I tuned out for a second looking for the exit on the highway. Do that little rewind thing and listen to that part again. Because I think a lot of people, well, I know a lot of people write in asking that. And it's a really tough answer to give because it's hard to tell if somebody's a quote unquote real entrepreneur or a entrepreneur or not really in that mode at all. And, uh, you know, honestly, one final question that you're in, a, in an interesting spot to answer is a lot of people say, and you touched on this earlier, well, you know, I, I started this business and this year's the year I'm going to quit my job and focus on my side business full time. Uh, when should I do that? How do I know when I should quit my job and focus on my side business? And, and it, it's actually a really tough answer. The one that I always give is, wait until you're the only factor left is your time. You know, you can't outsource it to anybody else. You, the only thing that's driving ROI is the amount of whatever that you're able to put in. Then you quit your job. But before then, it's dangerous. What do you think about that? There's a lot of people running side gigs that want to quit their job. But I think they're doing it because they just want to quit their job, not because they need to quit their job to make the business happen. This is tough. You know, I, uh, I have a lot of passion around this and, uh, but I also want to be, want to use empathy and, and recognize everyone's situation is different. I, I will say I'm passionate about being an entrepreneur versus entrepreneurial tendencies. I think they're very different. I think if you're scared, that's, you know, lack of fear is probably the first amendment <laughs> of an entrepreneur. And so you know, I think you've got to have financial stability. The people that are completely just rolling the dice and like would be hurt by having a year of no income if their business doesn't work out, like evicted or or get a divorce or kids wouldn't eat or welfare. I mean, if you're going to get hurt by one full year of taking this risk, I wouldn't do it um, because if that's your situation, you know, my my historical view and I've seen it a million times is you're probably not going to pull it off. You know, to me. If you can't breathe anymore, that's when you do it, right? To me, it's, it's about happiness. This isn't about money. This is about being happy. You only live life once. You know what's crazy is you don't need a whole lot to be happy. Like, and I know, again, everybody's going to be like, easy for you to say. Truth is, you know, I'm not so much happier today than I was at 24, 25, making $38,000 a year. Like, like happiness is contextual. I've got friends that are making $15 million a year. They're miserable as crap. I've got friends who make 70K a year. They're on the softball team. They have two kids. They freaking hang out. They have nothing but quality life balance. They take their couple of vacations a year. Like they're good. They're pumped. I think it comes down, Jordan, to knowing yourself. Like, like you clearly, this is now me asking you just for fun. You clearly knew yourself enough to have created a scenario where you knew you needed something like this, right? Like, and I think it comes down to self-awareness. Like, Please don't jump into entrepreneurship because it's the hot thing. It feels like every time there's, there's always a hot thing, right? It was real estate. Then it was being a social media expert. Now, you know, just being some, any kind of entrepreneur, you know, it's a, it's a tough game. It's a lonely game. It's hard. This is really hard. Being an entrepreneur is a real skill. It's like being an NBA basketball player or a movie star. Like you don't just get to be an entrepreneur because you say so. Yeah, that's for certain. That's for certain. And in fact, uh, up until a couple years ago, I never used the word and I still kind of hate it. It's just that now it's everyone knows what you mean when you say it. So it's become convenient. But I hated when people would be like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, that's kind of an overstatement. You know, I run a small business with some friends. 
you know, you're generating a lot of revenue and it, it just feels a little bit, uh, a little bit pretentious to use the word, but it's, it's crept its way up nicely in the, in the modern trendy vernacular. And so now if you don't use it, people are like confused by what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't get hung up on, uh, on words because everybody gets hung up on words, right? Like everyone's massively passionate about like that word sucks now. Like unicorns, which is a term for billion dollar companies in tech or transparency or authenticity or, you know, entrepreneur. I mean, you're right. I mean, that's what happens. I I don't know. I just think that it's sexy right now. It won't be sexy again someday. Um, But uh, right now it's sexy, sexy, sexy. And, uh, and I recognize that, um, that it's way more dangerous than people think. We're starting to read more about entrepreneurs that are committing suicide. It's very lonely, Please just make sure you know what you're getting into. But on the flip side, if you're super unhappy, I, I, you know what? I got a great, I, I talk this spiel a lot. Somebody sent me an amazing email. They heard me talk about this similar style tone to what I'm talking about right now. They emailed me that they sold their house in a upper middle-class neighborhood and went to a middle-class one, safe, nice, good. But that gave them the money to kind of like do their thing. And they haven't crushed it. They're, they're actually not doing as well as they'd hoped. Um, but it gave him like two or three years of leeway because his expenses went down. They've started coupon cutting and all this stuff. He did a lot of things. His family did a lot of things to allow him to not have to make the same level of income to really go in for this at bat. And he goes, I'm not winning. He's like, I'm really not. I'm probably a year or two away from having to go back into corporate America. He goes, but it, I haven't even been remotely this happy. And so I want to tell that story because if you want to be happy, you have to do drastic things. So Maybe maybe you don't have to make as much as you made in your income because maybe your expenses or the neighborhood you live in, like maybe you can sell your home and move. Like maybe you can do that. And so I recognize school systems, kids, what your husband or wife think. Like these are all real life dynamics. But I always say, if you want to be an anomaly, you have to act like one. You have to do things differently. And uh, expecting to do things the same way as everybody else and having different results is just not smart. Have you heard about the Minecraft guy who invented Minecraft, sold it to Microsoft? And made bit like two point five billion, and now he's lonely, unhappy, sad, totally lost. Have you heard about this at all? I have. I, I saw the headlines. I didn't read. Um, I didn't read uh, the article in depth. Right? There's no real. I mean, the article. I know you're t- it's it's two paragraphs. It's really short. It's just people bitching at him for being sad um, and talking about how you know he sold Minecraft, which is a video game. If if you haven't seen it uh, out there. And it was super popular, super simple, and people loved it. And he said, now that I'm not making things that people love, I don't know what to do. Because he bought a $70 million mansion. He made friends with a bunch of famous people. He has never-ending parties. He had made a whole wall out of candy. He's got every toy known to man. And um, he's a, a Swedish guy, you know, and he's – so you can't blame America for this one. <laughs> but he's really unhappy. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He He literally tweeted something like – Staring at my reflection in the computer monitor, waiting for friends to get home from work to see if somebody can actually do anything, hang out, do anything. I'm so bored. Like, he's just really, really depressed. And I wondered kind of what you thought about that because, you, you know, you haven't hit the $2.5 level yet, but it doesn't matter because the truth is he experienced really sudden success. He's not climbing anymore, and that's what the looks like the problem is. I have a funny feeling, and I mentioned it earlier, that I'll never have that phenomenon. But if I did, I mean, look, I passed on Uber's investment in the angel round twice. And that could have been a moment for me where a lot of financial windfall came in one false swoop. I, uh, I don't know. I can tell you this. I couldn't wrap my head around 
not climbing, right? To me, if I ever lost the desire to, you know, listen, a lot of times I judge myself. Why don't I want to climb in curing diseases or solving world's problems? The truth is I just don't. Like I don't, I can't help it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm mad because it would be really noble and it'd be cool and a better legacy from a noble standpoint. But I do wonder if there'll ever be a day where I stop wanting to climb in a business environment and what will happen? Do my parents pass away from a rare disease? Does something tragic happen in my life? Something to alter the course that I'm on that then shifts my passion to climb something else that isn't business oriented. My intuition is if I ever hit a business lull because of success or maybe flamed out or who the hell knows that I probably would shift to something a little bit more. You know, the one thing that's always been there, actually, I haven't talked about this in years, I would love to start a business school for kids K through 12. Like the school that I wish I had for me, the one that would have made me even further along in my journey. Yeah, what would you focus on in that school? What would you teach? Business, like real shit. Like let's go out and sell lemonade in kindergarten and like it's all about signage and and how much margin can you make on powdered sugar and then, you know, teach case studies of why new Coke failed or or how Twitter did it or you know, what happened during the industrial revolution that's happening now or why, you know, why TV advertising is overpriced, like just literally stuff, like literally business stuff, like stuff that people like come and watch my show for. Yeah. I would enroll in that even at age 35. So I'm all about it. it, So when are you going to be a shark on Shark Tank? Every new season, I'm looking for you to pop up as a shark. You know what? I really, I really, really blew it this season. I know that Ashton and Saka and Troy Carter, a bunch of my friends are going to be guest sharks. I'm super pissed I didn't make the cut. But as if you're still listening and you listened early on, you know me well enough to know that that just pumped me up even more. <laughs> like now I'm like, screw it. I'm going to make my own show like The Voice did to American Idol. I'm going to put them out of business if they don't think I'm good enough. Da, 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 da. So I haven't made the cut yet. This will be interesting to see all the my homies on it this year to see what that does. Does that open them up to more people? And, you know, I'm just a tier, tier underneath the people that are ahead of me in uh, Mark Burnett's eyes. So I've got to keep hustling. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I'm all about it. Gary, this has been amazing. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you, you teach the audience? I would say this. I just, uh, I don't, I don't know how to get this across because I can say it and I can say it with passion or curse or get going. But Jordan, I put you in a weird mood or if you're in the right mindset or you've drank a couple of good craft beers or had a nice glass of wine, which would make me happier. You know, please just, please just know this is it. Like one at bat, right? Like, and this is worldwide. This is not just us. The internet has created freedom opportunities that we've never seen before. It just has, you can, you can be cynical all you want and it's brought plenty of bad things. I get it, but you've only got one life and it's so real. It's crazy. And so please position yourself for happiness, whether that's financial or creative or legacy or whatever it is, just spend all your time and energy in trying to figure out who you are, whether you have to go see somebody for the first time, whether you have to ask people, whether you have the intestinal fortitude to switch off your brain and finally stop lying to yourself. The quicker you're honest with yourself for real, for real, for real, is the day you start going down a path that's going to bring you a lot of happiness. And the truth is, Jordan, you may find this interesting. I spend a lot of time with 70, 80, 90-year-olds. I seek them oh. out when I travel. Okay. I'm very passionate about that age now because they've lived it. And I got to be honest with you, so many people live with regrets and they wish this and they wish that. And, um, and uh, Scott Harrison from Charity Water said to me, Gary, 
you're a good guy. This is when he just started to get to know me. He goes, I bet you're going to wait till you get really rich and really old, and then you'll start giving to charity. He goes, why don't you start just doing it now? Maybe you won't give as much, but you can do a lot more good along the way than you can in one false swoop at the end. And it really hit me. It changed the way I thought about nonprofits and cause and giving back, and it's changed my behavior in that world. And it's also changed the way I live overall. You know, as somebody who loves the climb and loves anticipation, you can't hedge for the next day. If, you know, since I am an entrepreneur and since we talked a lot about entrepreneurship, if you think you're an entrepreneur, if it's in there, you know, this is the interview. This is the moment. This is the second. Like, go out and go out and try. Try for a year. Like, talk to your loved ones and your family and just try for a year. You'll never regret it. Wow, that was Jason. That was really good. I don't know what you thought, Jason. It's hard. It's hard to get, contain him sometimes. So I'm glad. We, it's, I feel like we caught him at a chill moment, and we were in the zone on that one. I really enjoyed that one, Jason. What do you think? You've heard a lot of stuff from him, dude. It's incredible. And I, yeah, I'm a Gary V fan. I, I've gotten to hang out with him a couple times, and I was even at a live wine uh, library TV taping once. And this was him at a at a different level than I've heard him before. And you, you asked me in the middle of the show, he's like, hey, are you taking, taking notes for this? And I'm like, oh, oh, geez, I forgot. I was so engaged with the show. And that's why Jason got fired during the Gary Vee interview. But I hope you enjoyed <laughs> <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed the show. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know. Guests at theartofcharm.com. Jason and I pour through those once a month, and we'll pick out the best stuff and get them here for you on AOC. If you enjoy this, don't forget to thank Gary on Twitter. He's literally got millions of followers, but we'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm, and I post a lot of stuff there you can't get anywhere else. Bootcamp details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, we're sold out months in advance. Get in touch now, plan ahead, and the website's got the blog. We'll engage with you there. Review us in iTunes, subscribe. I'll love you forever. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in the production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. 